Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Rachel Thompson. Hello, Rachel. Hello. As we've covered recently in the episodes with Catherine Angel and Joy Townsend, the ongoing journey to sexual subjectivity for women is often difficult and fraught with harms, violence, degrees of unwantedness, coercion and a lack of consent. The narrow legalistic framework we have for understanding these harms are geared towards identifying or perhaps not identifying perpetrators. This often stifles the voices of survivors of violence. In a society where sex is still so stigmatised, how can we find the spaces and the vocabulary to talk about sex and make sense of our own experiences? Where we're given such strong messages about what sex is and who is allowed to have it and who should do what to whom? How as individuals can we navigate sexual encounters when society unfairly distributes agency and gives us few tools to allow for the possibility of collective agency and joy? Rachel Thompson's book, Rough, How Violence Found Its Way Into the Bedroom and What We Can Do About It, is a timely and wide-ranging survey of all of this. It's thoroughly, thoroughly researched and does not offer simplistic explanations for why violence happens in bedrooms and in society more broadly. However, it is a calm and flinching inquiry into what violences there are, with an intersectional lens on who experiences them, and a call to arms for how we might change the culture in which this happens. So here is a content note right now, ahead of the rest of this conversation. We are going to be talking about violence in its many forms. However, we will try to avoid detailed descriptions of any individual acts. Uh, Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> uh, I invited you ages ago. I knew mm. about this book coming out. I've had one of these fancy advanced copies, oh, yeah, which made proof. me feel very, very important. A VIP. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, partly because also, and I knew that this book was going to be uh, good because you'd asked me various questions about it, and I appear in it a couple of times, which you is do. lovely. Yeah, um, and so uh, I knew that that this was that this was going to be a critical book, uh, a book which kind of examines culture, a book which is really well researched and doesn't kind of fall into some of the. Um, basic culture war <clears throat> takes about things, uh, particularly mm. around things like porn and uh, rough sex and things. So just listener, if you're put off by the title of the book, don't be, okay? <laughs> it's not it's not one of these basic books about porn's making everyone do things. Um, it really isn't. And it's really quite wide ranging, really uh, important with lots of um, uh, useful stuff in it. Um, and you. So perhaps the word enjoyable is the wrong one to use, but I did kind of in, yeah, oh, I found I'm glad it really to hear valuable. that. Yeah. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Yeah, I've heard that from a few friends, actually. A few friends have, like, really enjoyed it and, like, just mm. read it in a few sittings. A few of my other friends are, like, <laughs> have had to take breaks from it, which is very understandable. Yeah. And there is a note at the start that says, like, if you need to. Because, you know, so many of the chapters are probably quite triggering, I think, for some readers. And, yeah. you know, but, yeah, a few of my friends have found it tough. I think also well, that the introduction as well, just from a personal sure. standpoint, they, they struggled with, so... Well, I think you tell that story quite well. It's that it, it is like the story of how about a lot of this, a lot of a lot of this is about kind of um, the stories of uh, women and non-binary and trans folk looking back on themselves kindly and mm. looking back and saying, "Well, thinking about it, and and the more I know about sex, and the more I've experienced sex." The more I've read about this, the more I've kind of understood from me too, and. Um, the Swedish. There was well, oh yeah, Prata Omdet. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, that. Yeah. yeah, that was really interesting. <laughs> um, would you know? 
has kind of informed more people. So these kinds of conversations are are happening, aren't they? And I think mm. it's kind of the the book has that kind of conversational without that that kind of tone of having a conversation with ourselves. I think absolutely. Um, yeah. I think that, that that completely sums up kind of where, like my personal journey even, because mm. some of some of my thinking changed while I was writing and researching. And I found that mm. quite interesting if you just think about it in purely objective, you know, non-emotional kind of lens. But yeah, mm. I, I just think even even as someone who is engaged in in the kind of, you know, sexuality, sexual violence conversation and that you know that is my job I'm a sex and relationships writer you know mm. it's it's interesting how even if you do have the knowledge you can still like kind of avoid almost categorizing past experiences and that there's you know I'm sure there's a, a psychological uh, reason behind that you know that's part of the whole you know unwanted um, unacknowledged rape and we go into that at the start of the book um, but I, I found it really interesting just how descriptions and how how you categorize your own experiences your own lived experiences can change over time and that you know that's a very personal um experience really yeah and as i said in the intro that we we're not allowed those kinds of uh words where the mm. when we're using the words of um uh of the criminal justice system then that takes the the focus away from the survivor uh, and exactly. so it means yeah but tell us a uh, just um let's go back a stage and tell us a bit about yourself and mm. how you came to write this and why you because you do write yourself into the book which is really good yes. and uh i think good that's the wrong word to use <laughs> i think really i think people will find it really valuable and useful mm. i always think it's good to have you know to, to understand why why a writer why an author is is writing that book and i mm. think that that introduction for me just really you know gives a bit of that context but yeah i as i mentioned a minute ago i'm a sex and relationships writer i work my day job is at mashable um so i'm an online journalist i write about you know dating culture gender um single life or all of that sort of stuff um and digital and how digital culture kind of intersects with that um and i started working on this book a few years ago i think 2018 um, I started thinking about kind of, um, actually, I started thinking primarily about grey areas and how, um, you know, the conversation that um, sort of came about after the Aziz Ansari allegations. Mm. Um, and I, and I, I felt that there was a real missed opportunity there. Um, and I think that there are, you know, a lot of reasons why people kind of shut down and didn't want to have that conversation and a lot of people did engage and a lot of you know there are a lot of really nuanced takes that you know mm. came out of that but I did feel like we missed out on having a broader you know societal conversation about about the more nebulous um harms and the, the broad spectrum of harms that mm. don't fit these kind of legal definitions of mm. of um you know violence and non-violence I suppose mm. and um and so I wanted to explore that and, and I didn't want to explore it necessarily just through um, that lens of, you know, oh, a celebrity has done this. Uh, and because I think that that can be alienating for some people, you know, we want to, you know, I don't think all conversations about sexuality need to stem from high profile people, you know, transgressing. Um, but that is kind of how it how it happens so often. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was thinking about that um, and I was so aware that just the term grey area is so jarring for so many people. Yeah. Um, it's definitely not a perfect term, but it's certainly one that's being used by a lot of people to, to really, you know, kind of describe those 
those things that they just don't have language for. They don't have the words to describe. They they are reluctant to call it sexual assault or rape. And so they find, you know, this kind of lesser... And, and I, I should say that sometimes, sometimes the grey area term is used to describe things that are genuinely, you know, things that, for instance, if you look through a legal lens, things that, you know, the law just doesn't actually you know, cover. Um, so, you know, things like cyber flashing, for instance. Yeah. Um, but um, sometimes grey area, the grey area term can be used to discover, to, to kind of describe um, unacknowledged assaults and rapes. So mm-hmm. things that people, you know, violations that people have not yet come to terms with or um, learned to, yeah, le- learned the, the appropriate terminology perhaps. Or, you know, I think it's, yeah, so basically... Um, that's that's another element of the gray area um so yeah i i just really wanted to explore that and then it kind of one thing led to another so yeah well let's um let's talk about the the law and and Mm. and the kind of legalistic framing of this um actually another show that i did recently was with a researcher elsie whittington it's Mm. a show i often refer back to where we talked about the possibilities for consent continuums and this is something that kind of come comes in the comes up in the book yeah one of the things that i often say um, is that you know when when we only term something as re- as being consensual or non consensual, then we are then things co- then I, in my view I think things can always be more consensual. Yeah. We can always create more because if consent is about having the freedom to choose to agree with someone, then we can always give people more and more freedoms. And that by that way as well, when we enter into that, when we engage with someone else and trying to cr- co create freedoms then we are doing that collectively and that to me yeah. that's what good intimacy is all about definitely um but that thing the um that the, using those legal terms does kind of prevent people from owning their experience doesn't it that as you were saying rape and sexual assault they are their narrow legalistic terms that which can actually include uh quite a lot of different things but for the survivor it often just doesn't really they might not even want to turn themselves a survivor. Uh, yeah. Can you chat a bit more about about some of the like the processes that might be going on there and what and, and, and yeah. the experience you found talking to people about it? So from a, I mean, when you were talking a minute ago, I was thinking about one of the chapters where I interview a trans survivor of sexual violence, and they they you know reported the crime to the police, and the and the police were like, "Are you are you sure you you understand what you're accusing that person of?" And and so almost, you know, going to the police reporting, which, you know, so often I feel like the the online conversation is like, why didn't they report that? And and right here you see, you know, number one, you know, you're already being taught to doubt yourself, to to Mm. think that the consequences of reporting violence and, you know, accusing someone are Mm. far worse than being the survivor of something. So I feel like the system is very much geared to you know you need to be sure of what mm-hmm. you're accusing someone of because the consequences of of being you know deemed a perpetrator is so much worse than being a survivor yeah. but i should also say that you know being a survivor and calling yourself a survivor is also a highly stigmatized status and that also mm-hmm. prevents a lot of people from from calling themselves that and from you know uh, identifying that way and you know it kind of people regard that status as you know victimhood and mm-hmm. they d- they don't want to be seen that way and so 
you know, that that feeds into this unacknowledged rape, unacknowledged assault, um, Mm. which is really prevalent. Um, And so, yeah, I think the it's such a problem to first of all because uh, the law the law in this country does not keep pace with the way that sexual violence is perpetrated in particular the way that like digital sexual crimes are perpetrated there's so many you know so many gaps basically and the, the laws are very messy and just not comprehensive and cohesive at all um and so, you know, if you if you were someone who does look to and I do think there are people who do look to the law as a kind of moral barometer um, mm. and you saw, well, you know, this isn't covered. This doesn't count. You know, that that could give you the impression that what happened to you isn't really a violation. And, a, mm. and I think it's a problem that, you know, that people do look to the law as that kind of like this is what's right and this is what's wrong and if and if we haven't got a law on that yet then then it's not yeah. valid um one, so. definitely yeah one of the questions that sometimes young people ask me is um often young men is is it legal if um mm. and i'm like well okay well i can explain the law but we have to kind of talk about this as well like if you are looking to the law as your uh, to see whether you've done something right or wrong you've already stepped over many ethical lines right Really? That's the thing. Yeah. And so I think um, I think looking beyond that legal prism and there's a variety of reasons as well, because, you know, so often just for so many communities, right, just trusting the police, the criminal justice system is just not an option. You know, we've got so many communities, black and brown people who are disproportionately targeted by mm-hmm. police and the criminal justice system. Sex workers, for instance, don't feel comfortable, they don't feel safe reporting crimes um, because they're they're worried themselves about being arrested. And so, yeah. you know, when we are talking about sexual violence, and, and I think there's an, an awful lot of people who do see this, you know, carceral feminist model um, as, you know, the solution, you know, is, you know, increased policing, increased imprisonment. I think it's really important to look at it from an intersectional perspective and to to acknowledge that that is not something that works and is not that's not something that's going to be trusted by so many people and um and I also just think that if you look at the like we talk so we talk about the like you know there are so many gaps in the law mm. but even the things that are covered by law are not you know they aren't the current set of laws are not are not actually working for survivors. Mm. You know, there's a horrific statistic that's like in the year ending March 2020, I think it was 1% of um, rapes reported to reported to police in England um, mm. resulted in, in a prosecution. Um, so, wow. you know, that's essentially rape is decriminalised, you mm. know, from a statistical perspective. Yeah. And, um, and so it's just kind of, I, I do think it's, we have to kind of, encourage people to look outside of that you know is it legal if you know we should be thinking yeah as you say is it ethical is it moral is it you know we should be thinking about modeling you know ethic like sexual ethical behavior like mm-hmm. and thinking about how how should i treat this human being mm-hmm. you know not not how do i evade the law no and, exactly yeah just to the i mean what's i think is smart about the book and why i'd encourage dear listener to buy this book and read it is that it is it goes far beyond just the interpersonal violence uh and it does and so you talk about in the book about the extra levels of violence or let's say harm or trauma that can be experienced by reporting 
like yeah. by having to go through the inevitable gaslighting or doubting your experience, having to relive something, um, having to um, almost relive something. In again, in this uh, in the her sexual self podcast, it, the uh, one of the participants in the study was talking about their first sexual experience as being mm. uh, they describe it as being rape. Or I think they say kind of rapey, but they were kind of like laughing that off and saying, "But at least mm. I lost my virginity, and that was kind of done." And it was like a very difficult thing to to read. But she was reading this and understanding it in a very different way. And so, being asked to look at this, to look at our experiences uh, as as viewed through the criminal justice system, is also hard. But then also coming up against a jury who are so inured with rape myths and mm. um, in the kind of rape culture so there are these kinds of these violences kind of ripple out they they go they go out into broader culture into the legal system and they come back don't they it is like yeah. a kind of a wave effect in that way massively and i think you know it's really alarming because I, I included some of these rape myths that you know are really really prevalent um mm. i think there's there's a lot of people who first of all don't uh don't understand that consent is ongoing and that com- it can be withdrawn at, at any point. I think some people think it's not, you know, you can't withdraw consent if you're already naked and it's mm. not and it's not rape if, you know, if um, there's no pressure applied, uh, mm. which, you know, kind of feeds into that, that the, the stranger rape myth. Um, you know, which, and I think it's really, it's, these are really dangerous ideas, not, not only from a, you know, from a, an individual standpoint as a person trying to protect themselves from violence but also yeah if you do look at it from that you know the criminal justice system and and you have it you you do go to trial and you take it as far as you possibly can then you're coming up against a, a lot of people who just haven't been um disabused of some of these of some of these myths and i do think that i do think there's a, a real problem with um just how prevalent some of these ideas still are, you know? Yeah, big time. We kind of talk, you, you talk about this in as, as how the, our sexual cultures might change as well. And it's interesting that you do kind of talk about um, mm. TV and film and things as well. But also a lot of that has shifted kind of post Me Too. I think that, well, yeah. I think we're still, I think it's important to also say we still have Me Too. You know, as soon as we start yeah. to categorise as still as we start being in the post Me Too era, then it's like, well, that happened, and now, and now it's no longer <laughs> happening. It's yeah. the the it's it's it should always be happening. But mm. I think it's really it's really interesting how that's been uh, how that's been increasingly talked about in media. But let's can we talk yeah. about TV? Um, yeah, because uh, I've written about these shows at my website for young people, mm. uh, com, dear listener, if you don't know. I go on about it all the time. If you don't know, I'm very disappointed. Um, <laughs> it's a great wrote, website. <laughs> thank you very much. I wrote about, um, I wrote about normal people and mm. I may destroy there. And yeah. they're kind of two very timely shows that you talk about in the book. And normal people is doing something quite... Um, almost revolutionary isn't it so let's let's yeah do you want to tell us about that yeah so i talk about basically i think it's episode two where mm. connell and marion basic or is it marianne um marianne i think i'm trying to get my irish pronunciation correct um yeah they basically are about to have sex for the first time and they have what kind of people on social media called the consent chat mm. and so um it was marianne's first time and so 
Connell, um, I think he asked her, you know, have you have you had sex before? She mm. said no. Um, and he went, he kind of got out of bed, went over to go get a condom and then was like, um, oh, you know, I think he said something like, are you sure you want to do this? Mm. And he said, if, if it hurts at any point, we can stop, you know, it won't be a problem. And I, I can't remember if he said anything else off the top of my head. I think that that was about... I think that was it, yeah. Yeah. And so many people, I mean, it created this huge reaction online because, you know, it's, I, I have mixed feelings because on the one hand, I'm like, I was watching it and I was like, first of all, like, how hot is this consent chat? Like, this, this I hope that people who, who have ever thought consent or, you know, consent negotiation is a mood killer. I hope they watched mm. it and just thought, oh, this yeah. is actually pretty sexy. Because, um, yeah, and I was just like, damn. Um, but then also... When have we ever seen a conversation like that play out on our television screens? I can't think of another example. And but I also just think, isn't it isn't it a shame that like I feel like almost like the bar is so low for yeah. TV shows if we're all in, you know, well, it was 2020 that it aired, if we're all getting excited and, and deeming this a really radical on-screen moment, um, for what should essentially be a very standard part of of our sexual interactions um so those Um, are my those are my mixed feelings about yeah i mean and the thing is we exceptionalize sex don't we i mean there are reasons why we exceptionalize sex because it's stigmatized we're told that we can't talk about it our sex education is so poor but we do these consent conversations in every other aspect of our lives like yeah uh do you feel like going to the pub later yeah which one what kind of time yeah that suits me or can we you know yeah or how in my book, uh, I've got a consent book. Mm. Again, dear listener, if you don't know, can we talk <laughs> about consent? It's out now. Buy Let's it. Let's do a bulk um, buy. <laughs> like, how do we, how do we negotiate what we watch on TV with someone? Like, what, you know, what show yeah. we end up watching? We're constantly doing consent chats. And so the idea that this is something which is, uh, disrupts the mood, kills everything, is part of it. it. It allows for it to become, doesn't it? Yeah, massively. And, and and I think that that's such an important point to make, that these little mi- almost micro-negotiations, mm. we, we have them constantly and without mm. even thinking about it, right? We don't yeah. think like, oh, that person just asked for my... I mean, sometimes you're like, oh, wow, that person did just ask my consent. But like most of the time, I'm like, you know, if my mum texts me and is like, oh, where do you want to go for dinner or what do you want yeah. for tea? I don't know. <laughs> that makes it sound yeah. like I'm a teenager that lives at home with my parents. Fish I don't. <laughs> yes i bloody love fish fingers um but you know like all of those and we don't we don't think twice about them we we would never be like oh god what an infuriating conversation you're just ruining the vibe of the day so why why do we regard sex as this entirely separate realm where the rules of everyday life don't apply and i just find that a very i just and I mean, there's a section where we talk in the book where we talk about um, there's an NPR, um, I think it's a This American Life episode where um, a journalist goes and sits in on a kind of university consent workshop. Okay. And it gets completely derailed by this conversation about it killing the mood. Mm. And these university aged young men are all you know, rather than sitting and, and listening to, you know, this, these are, you know, things that you should do. And these are, you know, how this is how to, you know, negotiate consent. It, there, there's this fear of, of killing the mood. And I, I don't understand how, where that's coming from. I don't understand like how this is, is taking such 
like prominence in in people's minds. I find that yeah. strange. I think some uh, just. I think this isn't to do with the book, but I think mm. just as a side note, I think consent is taught so badly and yeah. sort of taught so non-consensually that what ends up happening is that young men kind of just book against it and want to derail it. Yeah. And I've, I, I completely understand it, actually. Yeah. I think we need to do... Um, I think young people are being sick about being told what consent is at the moment. You know, they've mm. been shown the tea and consent video and said, this is consent, and they're like, fuck off. Uh, I think, actually... <laughs> They, they yeah. respond much better, in my experience, to experiencing what consent feels like, how we might actually usefully negotiate it, what are some of the barriers, why talking about sex is awkward, mm. and, and noticing that. And they, they like that, but um, they don't like being lectured, which is actually ultimately non-consensual as well. But, That's very interesting. Yeah, mm. but I don't want to keep talking about me. Let's talk about the book. No, no. The, <laughs> the other thing about the um, that comes up in the book, and let's... Uh, so we talked about how you know we have the scene of normal people we were just talking about is kind of interrupting a sexual script, isn't it? It's saying yeah. it's basically saying, okay, this is a disruption of what you would normally expect. So normally, what we would expect in a in a scene like that is that Connell would silently get a condom, mm. Marianne would just lie back, and they'd have well, they they're already naked at this point. They'd have penis and vagina sex. Um, mm. And so speaking of. Uh, of other sexual scripts that happen when people don't talk let's talk about porn and and it's this complexity that we have around it giving us a sexual script that that how that sexual script has changed and to what extent this is affecting our sex lives generally and it's a really complex one this isn't it which you go yeah which you really do deal with really well i think oh thanks yeah i i think it's so tricky because as I kind of note in the book there is certainly this this I think that it's really hard to talk about it's really hard to talk about porn and sexual violence at the Mm. same time because it will I feel there's a real fear of it being completely misconstrued Mm. and there's a complete flattening of discourse that goes on and now everyone just wants you know well not everyone I should that's a generalization but you know I think we saw Don't recent... say everyone. <laughs> <laughs> everyone wants to blame porn. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I and I, you know I saw a few headlines recently that were talking about like rape culture and you know pornography being the the driving force behind rape culture and and I just think you had a really good Twitter thread about this actually that it's oh. just it misses a lot of uh, I mean it, it's just. It, this is it's a lot more complicated than that i think is what you were saying yeah. um and i think like basically i wanted to i think i think we should feel freer to have critical conversations about porn mm. um but at the same time not have that fear that's lurking in the background that it's going to be construed as you know a porn critical argument and that our our sole you know end game is to you know legislate uh, the erotic imagination um and i i think that it's a, it's a really unfortunate that we've reached this point where you know i uh, the public debate is being stifled i think by yeah. by a lot of really really um simplistic arguments that mm-hmm. you know essentially just want to have porn as the you know the scapegoat mm-hmm. um and then and then just move on and you know everyone is absolved of any kind of personal responsibility you know 
I guess this comes up, and this comes, but it, it comes up in the book, and I think I think a lot, some researchers, I think, are trying to find some kind of causal link between what is yeah. seen in porn and what is happening in the bedrooms in in bedrooms. But I I found in your book there are some there are some really quite alarming statistics, which um, uh, I mean the. That surveys that you know really legit surveys uh, mm. and, and studies find is that there are large percentages of um, particularly young women who have experienced some form of uh, uh, sex towards them, which is characterised under the broad umbrella as rough, right? Yeah. So these things might involve um, what's well, called choking, but really it's putting putting your hands around someone's neck. So cho- yeah. that's not, te- but everyone calls it choking. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, spanking and spitting and and grabbing like that rough grabbing, um, yeah. quite large percentages uh, of of young people have experienced that, and to a large degree they are, to some extent, consensual. And there is a kind of spectrum of it seems um, consent going on here that there is a degree of unwantedness sometimes and a degree of wantedness. And it's I think yeah. some of the studies haven't quite passed this yet, but. Yeah. There is more of this, and a common sense view of this is that, well, young men are just spending all their time on Pornhub, and they're seeing all these acts, which are increasingly common, and mm. spanking and uh, what's been called choking and restraint are very, very common acts in heterosexual pornography, but also a lot of gay porn too. Mm. And so the common sense view is they're seeing that, and then they're doing it in the bedrooms. But there's something a bit more complex going on isn't there do you think I think so um yeah because I think it's down to this obviously when we I don't want to like boil the ocean or anything but it's like you know I think um when it comes to some of the academic research Hmm. there are like methodological issues and there's all there's often when subsequent media reporting um you know reports on those findings there there is a conflation of this association that is often found um and and a causal link and i think that people often com- you know people confuse the two things um and and i i found your blog really interesting and really helpful on that on that point um and i think that it is it's more complicated because as you point out in in that blog that you know essentially that you know p- media is complicated in the way that we all we all interpret it in different ways mm. and we some of us may have had pre-existing views and i think mm. the chapter that goes into i think it's i think it's the non-consensual ejaculation mm. um section and essentially there are uh, so one of the academics interviews um a group of young men that engage in that essentially you know non-consensually ejaculate on uh, on women's bodies and faces after mm. you know and they they have they have seen it in porn and and they but some of them have have kind of these pre-existing misogynistic views that mm. make them feel that they don't have to seek consent mm. and i think that that's interesting that yeah. where's that come from this this idea that you know you they they want it actually without mm. without knowing it um mm. and that's something that was said um to the researcher um you know one of the one of the participants in the study said oh i, I you know she had a kind of skanky look about her and i just right. she she looked like she you know wanted it even though she didn't know it yet mm. so 
yeah, there's that element of the interaction of, you know, a person's background, basically, and, and all of the things that have shaped them as a, as a whole person. Um, so, yeah. yeah this, is the, this is where it comes into the how agency is unfairly distributed, isn't it? You know, it's the yes. thing of um, that uh, some people are just denied the same levels of agency. There is always a difference in um, agency. So agency, uh, dear listener, we're talking about our power to make decisions for ourselves, our, our clout, our oomph. There's always a difference in power, but there's often a difference in power, particularly in heterosexual uh, uh, encounters, because the messages that men are told about sex is that they should be interested in sex and active and dominant, and women are told basically be the opposite of a man uh, mm. to objectify yourself and do whatever men want and so that's always at play but then the intersectional approach that you have in the book is also really interesting here as well because then obviously other forms of oppression also uh, overlap here and then decreases or has the effect of that that oppression happens in the bedroom too doesn't it so can you yeah. talk a, a little bit about this that like how that power kind of um, is runs from culture through us and then into the bedrooms. Yeah. So I think, yeah, even just that, you know, I think in heterosexual sexual encounters, you do have the that dynamic, right? That power imbalance of that of the the male um, that the man having more systemic power than you. Mm. Um, and I think um, so. I was speaking to an academic, uh, Lena Bei Chung, who actually I found just a really fascinating person to talk to mm. and we were talking about agency and I think that this is a common thing that that comes up in these conversations you know oh how agentic is she you know how can mm. we get young women more sexual agency and this really ignores the fact that you know our our sexual agency is shaped by the social conditions that we that we live in yeah. and and I think that we don't I don't think people certainly in the wider you know <laughs> in the non kind of academic realm the non-sex educator realm i don't feel like people really talk about that element of agency um and i wanted to explore the way that you know uh, our identity presents ways for us to be further harmed um and i think there are there's i learned a lot from from speaking to lots of different people from lots of different communities who i, I think it's honestly a lesson in in empathy for for a lot of people and it depends you know whether you're you know a young white woman who you know has had her own you know experiences but it's really valuable to also understand that that you know all of these like it's not it, it looks different for people of different communities if that yeah. makes sense and I think it's yeah. really and you know I hope that you know, young men would also, well, not just young men, I hope men read the book and um, that, you know, it, it shows them, you know, it teaches them something. But, um, mm. you know, yeah, I speak to, um, to let me think. So I have um, two chapters on, on race and that, that kind of goes into colonialism and mm. the impact that, that that's not just having on our sexual culture, but also how we've come to you know, gain knowledge in the field of sexual health and, um, you know, things like J. Marion Sims, the, um, who's often referred to as the father of gynecology. Um, and he, he invented the speculum, um, which is used in pelvic exams and smear tests. And, um, 
all of this knowledge actually came at a huge human cost because he was conducting non-consensual experiments on enslaved black women. Yeah. And and so, you know, I wanted to examine just the, the kind of legacy um, that, that exists as well, um, that particularly in um, when we talk about race and sexuality, there is an awful lot of of microaggressions and macroaggressions and and violent acts that mm. really hold they have their roots in in colonialism and and in slavery mm. and we are essentially when when they when those acts are carried out we are re-traumatizing people from that community mm. um and replaying that historic dynamic and and I think it's so important that we are mindful of that and that we when we talk about anti-racism you know we we include sex in that and and i i think that that's something that is missing you know and i i think that yeah i just I, that was something i was really keen to explore <laughs> yeah and again in porn as well the um the very mm. frequent racist tropes uh, that are apparent yeah. in porn the racism within the porn industry as well um, mm. both is very damaging materially to uh, black people in the porn industry yeah. but also for anyone wanting to see descriptions of black people you know having sex and you know if you're wanting to see black people having sex it's incredibly difficult incredibly difficult to find anything that isn't isn't racist or fetishizing uh race yeah. in some way and that also is true for lots of uh, different racial uh, uh, ethnicities as well um mm. uh the way that porn kind of amplifies all of those oppressions in order to sell it back to us it is it you know it is really clear that it is porn is made for most porn is made for white men it seems um and it yeah. does kind of do amplifies the worst in society um in ways that are really harmful um, Absolutely. And I yeah. think even just the way that some of these websites are structured, just the user experience, you can see that um, porn relating to, for instance, like black people is, mm. is you know, it's positioned as this niche subcategory. Yeah. Um, white is the default. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you're looking for something more specific, mm. um, like pertaining to a particular a particular community mm. then it's presented as you know as kind of non-mainstream and and it fuels that idea that you know white white people are the default and they mm. are the mainstream like sexually attracted demographic sexually attractive demographic and that feeds into all all other um all these yeah. other ideas of like of desirability um, which we go into as well in this in one of the chapters of of um a lot of people feeling like oh um oh sick like white people think i'm fit and and that you know the kind of almost disregarding or laughing off microaggressions because it's you perceive it as validation and right. i think that that's really concerning as well where you cr you create these conducive conditions where mm. a person is made to feel so undesirable in society's eyes that that you know a violation and a microaggression can be perceived as validation yeah yeah i think that's got what's going on with a lot of um uh with a lot of these violences and harms that are happening as well like i i, I like i've mentioned before another chapter as well which i thought was really interesting and doesn't really get talked enough about is the chapter about um disabled folk 
and how they are simultaneously like hypersexualized and desexualized. Um, and you, there was a there was a quote from someone who was disabled saying, you know, I don't really want to go look on porn to see what for to mm. see anyone who is disabled because you know God knows what I might find that is like to be so fetishized and so objectifying and so um, harmful in and of itself and unpleasant that like they don't even want to go look. Yeah, exactly. And and I and yeah, just the idea of like yeah, not not even wanting to think about about seeing yourself reflected on this on a website that you know has everyone's you know well allegedly you know everyone's sexual fantasies mm. but but actually it's it's not everyone's sexual fantasies it's you know it's obviously the the white lens but um i i do think that yeah that there's so much there's i found that really really interesting that that kind of like dichotomy of like on the one hand completely desexualized like disabled people are so desexualized and regarded as you know like objects of pity Mm. as you know um and this this also like feeds into like you know when we when we have conversations about sexual violence very often um disabled people are erased from those conversations because of this attitude of well who would who would want that and the and the response is not that's an unacceptable and horrific violation it's oh who would want to have sex with that disabled person mm. as in as if the very idea of that is is the thing to pathologize right. and and i find that extremely dehumanizing mm. and and i think that yeah so you on the one hand you have that that desexualization but then on the other hand you also have hypersexualization and 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 basically the the person that their their identity being completely fetishized um and sexualized and it's just like you can't really win basically and you have this whole you know because and it becomes really really difficult i think for for disabled people to almost own their sexuality because Mm. that creates that you know the conditions that would perhaps lead to hypersexualization um yeah so it's just a really difficult dynamic yeah, I mean, and we're not just talking about porn here, are we? I mean, just culture no. and society more generally. It's, you know, where do we see... Uh, when we talk about positive... I'm, I'm going to say, where do we see positive representations of people with disabilities having sex or disabled people having sex? Um, not to say that that would somehow improve things. It, re- representation isn't like mm. to kind of um, necessarily to kind of act as a kind of... Uh, a vanguard and hopefully we might see more of it it's just it what does mm. what does this tell us about how culture sees people with disabilities and it tells us that then that they're not seen sexually at all and that that yeah. is yeah, that is not allowed exactly and when you do see it it i think as um holly ann brooks uh one of the people i interviewed for, for the book she she was just like it's it's still because you see it so rarely on mm. screen it's still it becomes this huge almost like this inspiration porn moment and this con- the conversation that ensues is you know it's not one that would lead to it, a normalization of it but it, yeah. it is hailed as this cultural milestone that you know should be celebrated when in fact we should be working towards this just being very normalized exactly. actually 
So let's get on to talking about um, if we can chat about Me Too and again I keep forgetting I'm looking at the <laughs> Swedish I'm going Prata right to Omdet. Yeah. Prata Omdet. So that was a really interesting chapter. In Sweden these conversations were happening around less about it, it seemed to be I mean you you say more about this than me, obviously, because you wrote the book. Mm. <laughs> but uh, it seemed to be really actually interested in the grey areas. It, it seemed to be interested in what might be yeah. termed bad sex or what might be termed unwanted in some way. Uh, tell us about tell us about this while I look it up. Yeah, so I think it was Prata around Omdet. Prata yeah. Omdet. I'm probably mispronouncing it yeah, in I'm horrific. Sorry, I've got a Swedish friend who's <laughs> yelling at me right now. I can hear her. <laughs> So apologies to Swedish listeners. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so about, I think it was around 10 years before before the Me Too movement became, you know, exploded into this mainstream movement. Um, There was a conversation, a a very, like, a societal movement and a a conversation that happened in Sweden. um, and, And basically it stemmed from... The, I think the initial starting point was the the conversation that ensued from the the Julian Assange allegations and mm-hmm. and a lot of people basically uh, were kind of throwing around these generalizations about what sex usually is mm. um, and ha- and you know how violence is and um, and I th- uh, basically the 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 woman that that uh, I think her name is jo- Johanna Kolhohan. I'm probably mispronouncing that mm. terribly, but she was looking at all of the the tweets and and just the discourse that was coming out of this and thinking, well, it's not that simple. And you know, you know, she thought about her own past experiences and you know of of how you know how basically you know it doesn't exist. Violence does not necessarily fit this kind of binary definition, mm. um, and. Basically, she she was thinking and mulling over and and decided with her journalist friends to to kind of coordinate this like event, basically, where they would all publish stories in the national newspapers on the same day where they would talk about um, a time where sex. I think the brief was just like talk about a time where sex was complicated. Um, And I think in her mind, her story was just like, you know, if if you had to report this to uh, a police officer that that it you it wouldn't result in a conviction because it was complicated and nuanced um and so there was this huge you know coordinated um event i suppose that took place that you know all these journalists published stories but um online a few days before that some of the journalists you know were tweeting about about um all these grey areas, the and and they just you know unpacking these these experiences, whether it was bad sex, whether it was unwanted sex, mm. uh, whether it was assault or rape, and just going into you know detail. Um, and because, um, and I think so, I interviewed um, Johanna, and she basically was saying that she wanted to approach it as a, how do you kind of uh, temporarily disable people, you know, disable the the shame that that is that surrounds conversations about sex because mm. you know well you know if we were to think about that, would we all be able to just wake up one day and all just be like hey i want to tell you about this kind of weird sexual experience that happened mm. you know there'd be so much that would prevent you from from talking about that that you know so much 
stigma and shame and, and embarrassment and you you know you wouldn't want your mum to read about it or whatever um and so she wanted you know that's why they all were basically publishing these stories on the same day because they wanted to you know just have it as everyone can participate in this one day where you know sexual shame just doesn't exist and mm. we can go into the into the nuance of of some of these violations and how it's not quite as simple as this binary of violence and non-violence and how there are things that you come away and you're just like, hmm, not too sure what just happened yeah. there. And um, and and so essentially they, you know, they had this national conversation about grey areas, about unwanted sex. And, you know, um, people of all genders took part in it. Men were able to talk about the times, that, you know, gender roles essentially led them to feel like because because masculinity and the, this idea of men should always be available for sex they should mm. always consent to everything even if they don't want it yeah um that led them to to these feelings of of um you know violation and um yeah subsequently uh an academic called lena gunnison she did a big uh, a big academic paper on it and and in her opinion she was saying that this that unwanted sex was the main the main thing that was unpacked in this right uh and i i think that 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 is it is such a complicated topic mm. unwanted sex because there's so there's i think there's uh i think there was like a, a kinsey um kinsey institute uh report that identified something like 230 something yeah, I keep referring that into the podcast, and I keep forgetting to actually go and look it up. And it's like two hundred thirty-seven or something. Yeah, I think that's the number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. two hundred and thirty-seven expressed reasons for having sex. Reasons for yeah. having sex. Um, and and I think that um, unwanted sex happens. Like I don't, I don't want to use the word normal, but it's you know, it's it's something that happens in the context of a loving relationship you know that mm. maintenance sex yeah um but there's also you know when it comes to when it when we look through the you know there can be reasons as well like if you have um i talk about attachment theory as well in, in that chapter mm. um you know and you're depending on your attachment style that can that can make you more inclined to consent to to sex that you don't desire mm. um but i think um one of the interesting things that came out of my um, conversation with um, Lena Bei Cheng is the idea of strategic consent. Mm. Um, and that, you know, basically someone can consent to sex they don't want to have because that's the safest option yeah. for them in that moment. Um, and that, you know, it boils down to the, you know, to agency being shaped by our social conditions mm. and a person of low socioeconomic status um you know this it can you know race and um all kinds of factors feed mm. into this and and can you know uh, basically what i think is interesting is that so often i think there's an oversimplification of um especially in kind of bad faith conversations about mm. you know let's say high profile allegations um you know there's that oh did she consent mm. and if she did then the conversation ends there because that's our that's the you know that's that's what we we don't care anymore because like yeah. you know that that's where it ends and um but we should be asking you know okay yes she consented but why yeah. um and i don't want to apply that rule to like just all unwanted sex because i do think that you know there are 
there are all kinds of reasons why people consent to sex and mm. not all of them need to be like problematized um mm. but when someone because of their gender because of their race because of their their socioeconomic status like if they if if those reasons are feeding in to the the reason why then i think it is worth exploring yeah and and i think that that's what just to circle back to sweden mm. you know that's what they really got to grips with on a really national level and i just think that's so interesting to be able to have that level of nuance yeah. um and and public discourse about some of these really some of these things are so complicated and to unpack you know how gender roles feed into our willingness to to consent to things mm. I, I think i mean i can i can't imagine something like that happening in the uk i think it would be great i, I don't i just don't know i don't know if that level of nuance is no. there yet i mean i think that um one of the things that i've started to kind of intimate whenever i run training courses for people about their sex education or getting people to think about their sex education is you know when they're taught well we were taught that it's something that is shameful and you shouldn't really talk about and i started mm. saying well who benefits from that right you know mm. we have learned this about sex these are learned things who happens to benefit from that well you know yeah. so patriarchy essentially but actually i think that and again dear listeners sorry for repeating this anecdote but you know a lot of men are really failed by this too and i think a lot mm. of men might just when they realize the extent to which the sexual scripts that they receive and the messages around masculinity they receive are not are doing really doing a number on them it's preventing them from having mutually enjoyable times or even mutually satisfying mutually comforting mutually anything times um mm. there was a guy i used to i used to work in a, a sexual health clinic a guy um uh, said to me, look, I'm 24 now. I've been having sex since I was 13. I've never once really under enjoyed it. I've had sex with hundreds of women. Never really enjoyed wow. it. And it's like, you know, the the culture kind of also asks men to dehumanize, dehumanize themselves, I think, to kind of objectify themselves. And so then what does sex become? It becomes somebody who is um, told they have all the agencies, somebody that they... they somebody who's being told by society that you are the sexual subject rather than this is something mm. you have to find and you have to like get sex from other people in this kind of you know rather than how do we create the conditions wherein we can mutually have some joint agency some lovely memories a shared experience only we will have um yeah and how what 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 practices do we ethical and consensual practices do we need to put in place to allow for that to happen it feels like in the UK, as you say, we're a million miles away from being able to mm. have this because even in just mainstream uh, newspapers, uh, in, in, in mainstream broadcasters, they're not handling this very well. And just to come back to I May Destroy mm. You, everyone was talking about how that was a drama about consent. I think it was a drama about sexual violence. I don't think it was yeah. a drama about consent at all. I think it's really yeah. important and powerful and, yeah, oof. Uh, but, you know, if if basically we get one scene in Normal People where Marianne is asked by Connell, you know, if, if it says, is, is told, this is okay, we can stop if you want to, rather than Mary asking, Marianne saying, yeah, and if there's anything you'd like to do or if anything you don't want to do, then that's fine too. And then how mm. that mutual consent happens throughout, you know, we don't even get that. And we just get this yeah. one scene. So, yeah, I agree with you. We've got a long way mm. to go, I think. Um, yeah, massively. Yeah. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And I just, I think that, you know, touching on that, you know, ethical sexual behaviour, I do think that that is something that we should really be thinking about. And and just, uh, I don't want to sound like all woo-woo and hippie, but like, just being a good person. And Mm. like, why should, like, why should the values that we uphold in all other areas of our life be, you know, why should we abandon those at the at the door when we are going to have, you know, have sex with someone? And I, I think that being mindful of of the the dynamics, the power dynamics that exist. And I, I do think I, I get frustrated sometimes as as a female journalist that writes about sex and relationships. I, I found that I mean like especially like political journalists in the UK, like kind of look down their nose on people that write about sex and relationships. And I find this really frustrating because sex is so political. And I think it's not, you know, this realm that's completely separate from, you know, all of the, all of these power structures that exist everywhere else in society. And I think I like, I write, I think it's like in the conclusion or one of the latter chapters that, you know, you're, you're, when you take your clothes off, you're not just like stripping off the like, you know, the misogyny that you, you know, walk around with. And so, you know, we should be approaching, you know, unless that is what you're going for, unless there's like power play or what, you know, unless that this is part of your role play, um, you know, you should be mindful of it and, mindful of the power that you hold um just as you are in relationships with other people whatever the relationship is and i don't Um, think it's a lot to ask (laughs) uh, no absolutely and just also uh just uh it is very uh bdsm friendly it's this book it's it's certainly not you know it certainly makes room for both uh, rough sex and BDSM sex to be consensual, and that's really clear um, mm. that in the book, uh, dear listener. But there is, but it's, uh, I guess, a bit to just to just to circle back before we end the because mm. I think it's a point that's really important that we just make sure that we make is that when we're talking about porn and the depictions of things like spanking and stuff that they that 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 certain things that were seen as kink are now have now become part of. Um, the more mainstream script of what sex is, but that doesn't yeah. mean that that's causing anything, does it? That it's part of our information. Part of the information, exactly. And and I think where I see it is kind of, you know, and it's it's hard because I do acknowledge that, you know, porn is entertainment, right? It's not education, and and so, you know, it's being produced in a way that is not necessarily you know, being like, oh, let's think of the children, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And like, you know, the things that, you know, when BDSM acts are being practised, you know, offline and not in a pornographic scene, you know, they, they have all of these consent protocols, you know, consent and safety is at at the core mm. of those practices. And that is obviously not shown. Um, yeah. and, and I think that that, you know, it with, perhaps without the intention being there, it creates misinformation because you know a person watching that who is perhaps not educated doesn't you know not educated in that particular space Mm. you know not knowing much about bdsm community will think oh right cool so i guess everyone's just you know choking and you don't need to ask for consent right and i think that's something that you know deserves you know 
like a conversation. Exactly. I think there yeah. are, there are some legitimate some legitimate criticisms of of porn, even if, if, if even if porn doesn't cause any of this. But I think mm. porn could show more consent. It could show mm. depict more ongoing consent and show Definitely. how some of these acts can be done in a way where um, where where that paying attention to. Uh, what's going on in the room is really important um but yeah anyway it's uh, it also feels like a whole other topic uh, massively to get into but yeah um so rachel this book is coming um we're, we're doing a plug let's do a plug so yeah <laughs> this book is coming out like late end of this week or early next week no thursday so thursday. this week right, yeah, 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 yeah thursday 26th of august yeah you can get it wherever you get Exciting. your books in yeah. bookshops it's yeah, bookshops. Uh, so that title again rough how violence violence found its way into the bedroom what we can do about it published by penguin yes yeah. on another is it a, square, peg. The imp- square peg is the imprint square peg. it's good yes. to get all this information isn't it <laughs> uh, and you can get it in shops and i'm sure it'll cost you some money or you can yes. borrow it from a library request it from your library definitely if you yeah, don't exactly. want it to cost you any money um rachel thank you so much for coming on i oh, you know it's you. books like these and journalism like yours which is uh really you know needed and we need thank just you. way more of this everywhere all the time and i think for yeah for this to be treated as a serious topic of discussion is something that would radically change our sexual cultures and so oh. Well done. Thank you so much. That means a lot. That's really kind. (laughs) Thank you very much, Rachel. Okay, until next time then, dear listener. Bye. Well, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. This has been the full episode of this conversation with Rachel. Sometimes uh, I do extended shows uh, on the Patreon. So if you want always to get the fully extended conversations, and if you want some extra bonus bits of content and early releases and access to our Discord server, or indeed if you just think this show is really great and you want to send me some money to pay me to make the show, uh, because I have no other funding to make the show, this is entirely paid for by my patrons, then please head over and continue, and continue, consider even, supporting our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships. It's a sliding scale, so it's like a pay what you can afford thing, so even from £1 a month would be super helpful and useful in keeping me making new shows. The more patrons I get, the more shows I can make, it's as simple as that. So that's patreon.com forward slash culture sex relationships and stay tuned for more shows coming out soon thanks very much then bye